This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today it is June 21st. We're recording Tuesday afternoon. As of now, Dow's jumped up 700 points. Uh, markets made, you know, it's pretty decent uh, comeback. Like NASDAQ, S&P, and Dow Jones are all a little bit under 3% for the day, um, up 3%. And in terms of the 10-year, uh, we're sitting at 330. Um, so th- th- these, those have risen to start the week as well. Uh, Tim, what are, what's your overall thoughts? I mean, last week, obviously, the markets took an absolute slacking, um, making up some ground uh, based on Fed's comments. Uh, what's, what's your two cents on this? Yeah, well, you know, coming into today, it, I feel like I feel like everybody's getting bearish, right? It's like it's kind of hard to find that guy who says, "No, I think we're going to have a nice, solid, soft landing. We'll sail right through this. We'll get inflation down. We'll go grow two, three percent on the back." You just don't have those people right now. But you also don't have like huge short base in stocks. Like the short base in stocks just is not significant. So there's always this fear that in a, in a bear market after a week like last week that you're going to get these face ripping counter trend rallies. Markets up two and a half percent today. Been sideways since basically the open. Just doesn't feel that scary if you want to be positioned short. And I just feel like we are so early in the process. Like the pitchers are still getting warmed up. We haven't even said play ball yet. And But the stage has been set for all of the slowdown. The financial conditions are what they are. And we know, and I, 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 every time I do a presentation, I show the slides of how good financial conditions do of forecasting slower housing, slower employment. So I just think that's where we are. We're at the very beginning of this. We're going to get earnings starting soon. You heard Lennar today, who's a May quarter, come out and say, yeah, we had an awesome quarter right up until about the middle of May. And then we started to see people start to walk away and reconsider. Um, and, and that's kind of the reality of it. Like, I was I was on vacation this week in a quintessential second home beach community, and there was nothing still for sale. So, like, we are really just at the very, very beginning of watching the data, not just rate of change slow, but in many cases, I think, turn actually negative. And hopefully that baseball team isn't the bad news bears because that seems like what we're seeing. Uh, We've seen Goldman Sachs now come out and they've upped their likelihood of recession by the end of the year uh, from 15% to 30%. But we have seen a bounce back. It's going to be choppy for the next couple of weeks, next couple of months. Energy, the big leader, no surprise there as oil, uh, Brent crude futures were up 1.1% higher. Uh, Exxon Mobil up more than 6%. Going to continue to watch those. But uh, the I, I think the interesting piece is the, the big tech stocks. So Alphabet and Apple and Amazon both jumped up a little bit today. Um, so choppiness in the market here to stay for the next couple of weeks. There's obviously been a lot. I mean, Powell right now is in a situation where he's got a dual mandate, right? So you got employment, but you also have interest rates. As of now, it seems like he's going to be, you know, tackling the interest rate side a little bit more. And, you know, obviously we, we got to protect the dollar as a store of value. So I think his comments were obviously the big takeaway from last week. Yeah. And look, he's 
you know, Powell compared himself, he didn't compare himself to, but he talked about the um, uh, the central banker who he kind of looks to and respects, and he used Paul Volcker. And he knows he's in that kind of position where he can't let up and he can't quit too soon. And, you know, we know that the inflation pressures, as much as financial conditions have been tightened, we know that the energy inflation pressures are going to be persistent. We know that the labor and wage pressures are going to be persistent. So he's got this battle where he knows the near-term data is going to be going against him, and he just can't show any signs of letting up. So he's in a really tough spot. And I think that it is that knowledge that everybody knows of how much pressure he's under to keep tightening that makes me feel like the the percentage of economists that think we're going into a recession is a lot higher than one third. And we saw that with the manufacturing numbers. So the May manufacturing output was the first drop since January. This also was the first week that we saw retail sales drop. And then now uh, home building and, and permits have sharp declines, which are all three big indicators of a slowing down uh, of an economy, right? When all of a sudden housings aren't being built or permits as well as consumer spending begins to decrease on top of manufacturing output, that's going to have a drag on the economy. We think about manufacturing specifically, 12% of that is, it, it accounts for the U.S. economy. So manufacturing is 12%. And that really has been supported by demand for goods. So in the United States, we have a, a strong demand. And so as we see manufacturing decrease, that, that can go hand in hand with the decrease in demand, slowing down of the economy. Um, also, a stronger dollar can can have a big impact on U.S. exports as they become more expensive. So that's another thing to look at uh, in those manufacturing numbers. Yeah, and don't forget that you have ISMs are going to keep rolling. Uh, and don't forget that you have you know the the tail ends now of the four trillion dollar of fiscal largesse. Uh, and you know a lot of that is going to be saved. It's just going to be saved. It's it's not coming into in, into the economy. That which is coming into the economy is really at its tag end. So you are starting to see a rapid weakening as the result of financial conditions, of rates, of the end of uh, of, of the fiscal stimulus, et cetera. And the capital utilization of, uh, of there you go, tongue twister, uh, of the manufacturing sector, really, how full are these firms with all of their resources? That was down. We're hovering right around 79, 80%. And that is one thing that the Fed does look at is that capacity, because if there's slack in the economy or if we're at a a full measure, then there's really no room to grow. And that's another way that the Fed looks as for as an inflationary measure as well. Yeah. I mean, when you look at mining and utilities, that's pretty much been the only bright spot. So numbers would be even more depleted had it not been for a strong month on that front. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about the Atlanta GDP, the Fed GDP now. Um, so, you know, that's a indicator. I think think from the article, it's been around since 2011. And, you know, right now, based on their model, we, we could actually be in a recession as it currently stands, um, certainly a stagflationary environment. Uh, so, uh, Tim, what, 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 can you explain kind of what the GDP now model is, uh, how it kind of estimates real GDP growth? And, you know, I guess what we should take away from the numbers. One thing to remember about the, the Atlanta Fed is they the, their number, their now cast model tends to be kind of volatile 
and it tends to overshoot a little bit. It doesn't have the greatest history, though it's always changing and and uh, and being improved upon, I guess. But yeah, it tells you that you know their statistical analysis of what's going on in the labor market, in the housing market, in manufacturing, in capital formation is that we are putting up zero growth right now. And you know inventories are going to be a lot, up a lot this quarter, but those come and go and create some volatility in GDP. The, the fact is, is that we are slowing incredibly quick. And when I hear somebody say, uh, repeat myself, but one third of economists only think that we're going into recession, I got to call bullshit on that. And you've got to remember that if you're a Wall Street economist, it's hard to get paid being bearish, right? The bankers are not looking for an economist who's looking to be bearish. The bankers are looking to, to have a guy who can at least paint a picture where there is some optimism in there. You want to be right, but the most important thing that you want is to keep your job. Uh, so you just, it, well, you know, don't look for Wall Street economists to all predict that we're going to go into a recession uh, before we go into a recession. That'll be a backward-looking indicator. You would think that'd be a, an obvious one, a little herding mentality. If they're the one who called the bear and everyone else is bullish, and next thing you know, it's a bull market. See you later to that to that one guy who brought his bear spray. But I mean, it 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 it, it is a hard number to constantly be changing on GDP. So the number is updated daily. GDP is is calculated with with masses amount of data. They're looking at it. Uh, are we going to into a recession today? I don't know if we are today. Will we in the next 18 months? Uh, I don't deal in absolutes, but I, I think we will. Uh, the one interesting piece is about stagflation. So the way that I've always thought about stagflation is slow economic growth with relatively high unemployment um, really then that's the stagflation is that you have prices that are raising but also high unemployment and our unemployment numbers are still historically low but now there's an alternative where people are looking at high inflation and really a decline in gdp and so i always think about the high unemployment i think with such a tight labor market we're not quite in that stagflationary environment but we are seeing gross domestic product uh, begin to begin to plateau, especially if we see uh, manufacturing numbers go down, uh, oil prices continue to go up. I mean, I just can't believe the the cost of airline tickets right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, my wife and I are going to a wedding in September in Boston and $850 per person for a round trip. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. I think you're going to see all of a sudden the travel and leisure industry start to lag based on prices. And, and then I think we're getting that into that stagflation environment. I don't think we're there yet given the the unemployment. And we still, even if we have a 0% growth, that was based on economies or quarters where our economy was beginning to pick back up and you look on a quarter over quarter basis, not a year over year. Yeah. But just remember, it doesn't have to be stagflation that looks like the 1970s. It could be this, uh, a stagflation that looks like just a weaker version of what we're in right now. We started the Fed tightening cycle at 3%. The Fed can have an, a, a really negative impact on the labor markets, and they will, but we still only get to 4.5-5%. That's still stagnant, and you're still going to be in an inflationary environment because you have worker and employer mismatches. So you're still going to have demand and labor in certain parts of this economy and certain parts of the country. Uh, so you can have a stagflationary environment with relatively, historically, relatively low in un unemployment. 
And I, I fear that's kind of the, the, what, what we're looking at. You know, I, I do sort of believe in that Larry Summers point of view that we are going to go sideways in terms of growth and the Fed is going to have a real hard time getting headline CPI down below three and four percent. And I think that is kind of a mild stagflation that we'll be looking at. Yeah, and it's ultimately when we're looking at it, um, you know, this is the steepest increase in rates um, really since 94. And, uh, you know, there's just been a huge decline in both uh, home values and also retail spending. So you just got just more and more metrics are starting to add up, um, you know, and they're kind of catching up with the general feeling right now. I guess one bright spot that we have is China currently. Um, they posted much better numbers than we anticipated, especially in light of the fact that Shanghai and other cities had very strict lockdowns and they were continuing a zero COVID policy. Uh, so yeah, let's let's kind of talk about China a little bit and and you know what that might mean for global demand. Look, China is coming off of, you know, the death cycle, right? Where they led complete lockdowns of their two major cities. It's, we as Americans or even Europeans, it's really hard to imagine, right? That level of authoritarian rule. So when you're coming off what they're coming off of, the numbers are going to look sequentially better. But, you know, take a look at the high yield market in China or the real estate market in China. It's not getting better. You've put together subsequent months of negative prices in Chinese housing. Uh, and, 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 and the high yield market there reflects that it is not getting better. You hear a couple quotes here and there of private equity in the United States getting involved small, but nobody really wants to step in there. So to me, you've got to see, to believe that there is going to be an enduring turn in China uh, on the demand side, you got to see a change to that property market. And you know, you look at the property market in the United States, look how long it took to crest. Rate of change peaked in, in the end of 05. 06, 07, 08, you kept slowing and then you finally collapsed. I think, and, and, and it's partly because confidence changes, right? Bull markets are about confidence, bear markets are about pessimism. And that, that changes like an aircraft carrier in the real estate market. That's how it happened in the United States. And I think that that pessimism, where in China, you know, Chinese invest 2x in real estate relative to other investments that they could make versus the United States. So their wealth, while they don't have the leverage stats that look as scary as 08 in the United States, it's all of their, it, I overstated, but it's, it's a much higher percentage of their wealth. So think about what the wealth effect is going to be in China long term. The other negative thing I have to say about China, and I'm sure China near term numbers will be better. I don't deny that. I'm sure there are I'm sure there are stocks that have just been decimated in technology in China that are of good values. I follow a guy closely who believes that. But the other issue in China is that um, you have the same, you have a demographic issue like the demographic issue we have in the US and in Europe. One of the reasons why we have such inflationary pressures and why I think we continue to have 
sporadic inflationary pressures is because of demographics, because the, the, the prime age male workforce growth is negative in the United States. And it is going to be negative in China due to the one-child policy in a way like you've never before seen. So workforce in China is shrinking. So the idea to me that they can get through this asset bubble that they're dealing with, and then they can resume non-inflationary growth, it just strikes me as, as just this powerful, powerful, powerful recency bias that we all have to deal with, where we just say, well, China's always been so strong and they've always figured it out in the past when nobody else thought they could, they'll probably do it again. I don't think that's a rational argument this time. I mean, I think that's a really great point when you start talking about the one-child policy and then thinking about their real estate. And we talked about this on last week's podcast, but they build cities before they have a need for it. So they are building billings before they have a need, and then they're not having enough children to populate them. I mean, that is a that is the, as, as simple, high level as that sounds. That's really what we're talking about here. Um, and and yes, they they have been an area for growth over the last call it 10, 15 years. But there's also another wave, Tim, that I think that we should talk about, and that is the U.S. government, right? So uh, we have this whole TikTok China releasing Americans data that uh, President Trump had uh, pretty much told TikTok they had to sell. They had the deal with Oracle and Walmart. When Biden took over the presidency, they walked back on that a little bit. Um, and now there is the BuzzFeed article that came out that's saying that the Beijing has been getting all the American data that they want when, whenever whenever they feel like it. And so now you're seeing uh, maybe a relook at U.S. Congress starting to take a deeper look at the Chinese deal making in the United States again. I mean, we've seen people being banned from the exchanges. Uh, th there, there is going to be some type of conflict between the Biden administration and this TikTok. We saw moves about Oracle hosting their servers, the data. But once you start talking about Americans' data in Beijing, that's something that the Americans' population is not going to agree with and not be okay with. And so then you're going to have the two largest economies going at it. And I did not even mention Taiwan yet. So, I mean, the tension that you have right there between the two largest economies is also going to cause conflict, uh, which is going to impact growth for both countries, right? Yes. Hard to imagine that changes anytime soon, too. Uh, you know, you look at where deglobalization has inflationary impacts right now. You know, we've talked a lot about how we have we just don't have refining capacity. Refining business is being run for cash. Nobody's adding refining capacity in a business that is on its way out the door. You know, the Biden administration could do what they want, say what they want, or not adding capacity. Who has global refining capacity in the world? China. We don't import finished product though from China. We never have historically. And we're not going to now. Why? Because they've got a they've got an export ban on refined products. So that right there you see an example of where the relationship between China and relationship is leading to real inflationary pain uh, in the US right now with the prices at the pump. That could be alleviated somewhat, I would think. I, I'm not an expert on this because because the supply chains in energy are very hard to change quickly. It's not just like you could place in a big order and the next thing you know, you got enough gas in the country and we're good. But it's it, it's still an example of uh, geopolitical problems will exacerbate the trend of deglobalization. 
Yeah, and then when you bring up the demographic issues, I think one thing that often gets over or underlooked, I should say, is with the one-child policy, uh, you know, the Chinese kept way more boys to term uh, in terms of pregnancy. So you have way more men um, who who are would be increasingly discontented now if they are have less work opportunities, but also didn't have the opportunity to create a family as well, um, and that obviously doesn't bode well for a society either when when you have just such a huge gender imbalance like that. It'll be interesting watching young society in China, which is disaffected and not happy, uh, and you have you know the the potential for a real brain drain coming out of China. You know the internet is pervasive; people can read whatever they want all over the world, even in corners of Cuba or or you know Syria. Um, so the China can't keep out what the rest of the world is doing, and more and more young people are realizing that, wow, there, there may be other opportunities that are more interesting to me outside of China. So yeah, they, they've got massive issues, I think. Uh, none, none of that discounts the fact that the economic data in China is probably going to look better for a, for a couple quarters. What else, gentlemen? What do you think we overlooked this week? Um, I mean, I am obviously was looking at Bitcoin and Ether and, uh, you know, there's definitely some technical charts that that look kind of scary on that side. But, um, yeah, there's just a lot going on. You know, one thing that has gotten very little attention is uh, the Democrats having to try to get through a reconciliation bill. You know, remember, this is the old Build Back Better Part Two is still out there and it's still a negotiation with Manchin and Schumer. Cinema is not part of the negotiations. Remember, this is not going to be a stimulative package. If anything, it's going to come with some corporate tax increases and some pass-through uh, tax increases or something along the lines of an alternative minimum tax globally. Uh, so, you know, it, it could be an investment in green energy, but you are not going to have checks going out to individuals. You are not going to have anything that counteracts the tightening that is happening to the lapsing of former fiscal policy and obviously tightening monetary policy. So you may get a reconciliation bill done, but I think it would be more likely to be considered and seen as an economic negative than an economic positive. And the other thing I would just say is we're only a few weeks, we're only two weeks out from the end of the quarter. I'd be real interested to see what kind of pre-announcement season we start to see. And I'll be real interested to see where S&P bottoms up earnings come out at the end of Q1. Again, that is not ever going to be a leading indicator. This this stock market is going to stop going down before earnings revisions stop going down. Uh, but that is going to be a long time from now because we barely have gotten started outside of discretionary consumer. Sounds like it's going to be a joyous ride. <laughs> uh, earnings season obviously coming up. That will be a big one looking at uh, numbers. Also, a big thing to look at is really the the earnings guidance. So what companies say about their future earnings, uh, a lot of those were cut during the pandemic. A lot of companies have brought those back, but that is a big indicator of how well uh, companies think that they are going to do and how well the economy is going to do over 
the next couple of quarters based on their earning guidance. So uh, earning guidance is one specific thing I'll be looking at during the during the calls. Uh, one other thing that I think we should mention because we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast is the semiconductor business. So uh, semiconductor companies told Congress that they're going to take their manufacturing elsewhere unless the government ponied up more for plants and can't blame them because getting us set up on in the semiconductor space is going to take years and it's going to be expensive. And if we want to be in that space, uh, we're, we're going to have to put a lot of money towards that. And so I think that is part of that build back better plan. Uh, there was some funding in that for the semiconductor business, but it looks like they're going to need more. And uh, in terms of national security, semiconductor business should be on the top of the list, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. Just won't be easy to get done. There are some places in Arizona that I think have cheap land. And as Drew was saying, land's pretty cheap in the metaverse, but I don't know if semiconductors there will help. <laughs> I can't wait for there to be factories in the metaverse. Um, yeah, I mean, that's another bill, obviously, the CHIPS bill, CHIPS Act. Uh, that's just kind of part of the bigger narrative of build back never, um, you know, but we'll see. Uh, there's a limited amount of time. November's coming up, and then uh, it will be January before we know it. So something's got to get passed. Um, but, yeah, with that, thanks for all the likes and subscribes. Uh, thanks for your time um, today, guys, and, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.